Today is Pentecost Sunday, the birthday of the church. Welcome to Encounter God's Truth. I'm Wayne Shepherd. So glad to have you join us today. We're reaching back into the archives to listen to a classic teaching from Dr. John Whitcomb, who's celebrating this Pentecost in heaven. But we can still learn much from his teaching here. Thanks for listening as we conclude this study on the significance of Pentecost. The Jewish people believed that their harvest festival of Pentecost was a remembrance of the day when God gave the law through Moses at Mount Sinai and created the nation of Israel. That Old Testament celebration of Pentecost was the background for the creation of the church in Acts chapter 2, following Jesus' promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, as we'll learn today. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Welcome to Encounter God's Truth with Dr. John Whitcomb, Bible teacher, author, and president of Whitcomb Ministries Incorporated. In Exodus chapter 32, we find that 3,000 men died following the giving of the law after they worshipped at the golden calf. In Acts chapter 2, however, at the birth of the church, 3,000 people were saved after hearing Peter preach the gospel. And as we mark Pentecost Sunday this weekend, we conclude a two-part study on the significance of Pentecost. Today's message is on Pentecost in the New Testament. Dr. Whitcomb begins with a brief review of history from Exodus chapter 19 and then takes us to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John chapter 1, to learn about some of the promises of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Friends, it's amazing to read in the book of Exodus how the nation of Israel officially began in their relationship to God as a nation under his laws. Listen carefully. Exodus chapter 19, in the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. The Jews traditionally understand that 50 days after the exodus from Egypt, God led Israel to the mount where they would receive the law, the Ten Commandments, the hundreds of laws that God gave them to constitute them officially, legally, as a nation in relation to him. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain, and Moses went up to God, according to Exodus 19, verse 3 now, and the Lord called him, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. Now then, watch this condition now. If you will indeed obey my word and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you should be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. God explained to them what is coming. So Moses came and told the elders, set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered and together and said, now listen carefully, this is an amazing statement. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. My, they had to be haunted by that, that statement in years to come, didn't they? So God, of course, confirmed that covenant with them to be his chosen people in all the world. The book of Exodus says it was to be, what, in the third month after they came out of Egypt that God gave them the law. To be more specific, however, the the book of Leviticus tells us in chapter 23, uh, verse 15, that they were to count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, at which time they would offer that baked with leaven loaves to the Lord. And that is traditionally understood to be the actual day of what we call Pentecost in the New Testament. And I say thank you, Lord, for giving us a historical background of how you created a nation 
officially, legally, at Mount Sinai on that very day. And I say, help us to understand the significance of that in the light of what the New Testament says happened at the creation of the body and bride of Christ, the church, the birthday of the church. In the Gospel of John, we are told about that day of Pentecost that was coming at which time the church would be created. Birthday of the church was anticipated amazingly by none other than John the Baptist. Now, he knew he would never be part of the church. He makes that clear. He was a friend of the bridegroom, not not the bride. But God told him something special was going to happen. Listen to this. John chapter 1, verse 32. John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. Of course, Matthew chapter 3 tells us how Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and there was a triune action of God. The Father said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit came down upon him as a dove, and there he was, the second person of the Godhead coming up out of the water to symbolize what his relationship to the Father and the Holy Spirit and what he would do for those who believe in him. So we, re- we read these words now. And I did not recognize him, John the Baptist said, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this one is one who does what? Who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And John said, I've seen and I bear witness, this is the Son of God. Now, did John the Baptist understand what that meant, that Jesus would baptize in the Holy Spirit? Well, Matthew chapter 3 says that uh, he predicted the Holy Spirit, he would come with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Not just spirit baptism, but fire baptism, which of course is the final judgment. Same in Luke chapter 3, he'll come with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In Mark, he simply says, he'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit, which of course is what is described in the book of Acts chapter 1, as we shall see. Now, as we prepare for this amazing event on the day of Pentecost, we read in the Gospel of Luke, the final chapter, Jesus prepares the disciples for what is coming. Listen to Luke twenty four forty nine. Jesus said, And behold, I am sending forth a promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You can't be an effective witness You can't serve me without the Holy Spirit of God. Now, of course, John the Baptist knew from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 11, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, other passages in the Old Testament, there would come a day when the Holy Spirit would empower the nation of Israel in the new covenant as as an entity, as a nation. But now he sees something to do with how Jesus would do the... Uh, We don't think John the Baptist understood, of course, what the church would be like. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 3, remember, that nobody before then knew what the church actually would be like. But he knew something. Jesus told him, someday, someday, the Holy Spirit would come in a new relationship to those who believe in him. So the Gospel of Luke prepares us for the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote by the Holy Spirit, and picks up the story in Acts chapter 1. Now, friends, here we are. Acts chapter 1. Gathering them together, that is, his disciples, for 40 days, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, 
Just like you remember he said in Luke 24, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for what the Father has promised, which you heard from me. Why, of all places, were they to stay in Jerusalem, who crucified Jesus, who hated the disciples? That is where their witness would begin. And you know, during that transition period until AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, all Jewish Christians worshipped God in the temple, even offering sacrifices. And Paul cooperated with that. He recognized that he's to be among Jews, he's a Jew. Among Gentile believers, he's a Gentile. He, he is not denying his commission to Gentiles. But you see, friends, finally, when that transition period ended in AD 70, no further animal sacrifices have been offered legitimately before God in the last 1900 plus years. That was the turning point. That was the turning point. But now, what were they to do? They were to wait in Jerusalem for how long? Ten more days. Because then he ascended to heaven. Remember Acts chapter 1? And I say, wow, isn't this amazing? You're to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, he said, verse 8. And you be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said that, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud, a glory cloud, received him out of their sight. He ascended to the right hand of his father. And the, the apostles were absolutely astounded, overwhelmed by the reality of what they had just seen. So he went back to his father's right hand. Now, friends, 10 more days they waited until what? The day of Pentecost that had fully come. And so we read in the book of Acts how that event occurred. Listen carefully to these words. And when the day of Pentecost had come, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. They were all together in one place. Suddenly, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It wasn't a wind, it was a noise like the wind. And filled the whole house where they were sitting. Perhaps this huge upper room where they were not necessarily the temple. Number two, and there appeared to them tongues as a fire. Not fire, tongues as a fire. Distributing themselves and rested on each one of them. Every believer had a little tongue-like piece of fire on top of his head. My, I can't wait to see a videotape of that event. Can you, dear friends? Amazing. Number three, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Foreign languages, they, they could speak because there were Jews from all over the world who could speak all these different languages that are listed beginning, you see, in verse 7 down through verse 11. They could hear the gospel in their own language. A reverse of the Tower of Babel curse, dear friends, as Jesus inaugurated an anti-Babel program to puncture and penetrate these linguistic cultural barriers that separate people from each other, thousands of them today still in the world. And they're to go in there and tell those people who Jesus really is, the inauguration of the Great Commission. Remember what they were to do, don't you, in Matthew? Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And I say, Lord, that's impossible. That is impossible. How can we do that in Satan's world? And the answer, of course, I am with you to the end of the age. And so the Gospel of Matthew ends with that assurance. And I say, Lord, thank you, thank you. I can begin to see something here powerful 
that had never been true in the history of the world before, before this moment. Now, the Apostle Paul explained to the Corinthians what this spirit baptism involved. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit, participate, imbibe, inherit. And I say, Lord, what an amazing way to state spirit baptism, as Paul does to those unworthy and confused and frustrated worldly-minded Corinthian Christians. Uh, Friends, no matter how worldly or even disobedient, if we dare say that, a Christian might be to the Lord, he belongs to Jesus and the spirit baptism that he experiences at the moment of, of faith, the moment he's born again, he is spirit baptized. He is a permanent member of the body and bride of Christ. Now, friends, this is amazing. Uh, Paul was traveling, you remember, in, uh, toward Ephesus on his uh, second missionary journey. And according to the book of Acts, chapter 19, he encountered 12 men who were disciples. They were believers. They were born again. But something was strangely missing, absent from their life there, as he watched them and talked to them. Listen to this. Acts chapter 19. Paul came to Ephesus and found some disciples and said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard whether the Holy Spirit has been given. They hadn't. They, of course they knew about the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, as we shall see, uh, who was their mentor, had told them over and over. Remember, we've read John the Baptist's witness to the fact that he would baptize in the Holy Spirit. So uh, they said, we haven't heard whether he was given in fulfillment of John's promise. And he said, well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism, which is valid. It was appropriate. It was sufficient for that time for a baptism to repentance and water. And what did Paul say to them? He said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hand on the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and all about 12 men. So you see, during that transition period, many who had only heard about the future of Jesus through John were now told Jesus has arrived, he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He, he went back to heaven. He created the church. And you must be a member of the body and bride of Christ by f- knowing these things about Jesus. And so, friends, we look back in these passages and we say, now, now this is an amazing thing. You mean Jesus predicted all this would happen? Well, l- listen to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Over and over, he said, the Holy Spirit is going to do something very special in this world. What is it? Here we go. John 14, verse 16. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. That's the third person of the Godhead. He went on to explain in verse 26, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Now watch, there's three persons involved here, you see. Jesus, I, the second person, will ask the Father, the first person, and he will send you another comforter, 
helper, the third person. Uh, notice the Holy Spirit doesn't act independently. In verse 26 of John 14, the Holy Spirit whom the Father, number one, will send in my name, number two, he, number three. Watch that relationship with the triunity of the Godhead. John 15, verse 26, when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. And chapter 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, shall not come to you, but if I go, I will, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then, of course, in verse 13, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now listen to this, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me. He'll take a mine and disclose it to you. All things the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he will take a mine and disclose to you. Notice the vital, dynamic relationship of three persons here in what the Holy Spirit does do today and what he did especially with miraculous sign miracles accompanying, illustrating, illuminating, convicting all the Jews something supernatural happened. On the birthday of the church, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And I say, now Lord, help me to understand something here. When the Apostle Peter saw what had happened, he got up and started to preach and friends, 3,000 men were convicted of their sin and repented and believed. Here's what he said you're to do. They said, oh, brethren, what should we do? Those thousands of Jews said to Peter. We're in Acts chapter 2 now, verse 38. He said, repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you see, friends, water baptism doesn't change anybody. It is an outward teaching symbol, a visual aid of what the Holy Spirit did on the day of Pentecost. And what he does every time a person believes, he becomes regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. And not just regenerated, Old Testament believers were regenerated, like Nicodemus, you remember, in John chapter 3. But these people are not just regenerated, they are what immersed in, which is what baptism means. They're immersed in the Holy Spirit who empowers them, illumines them, and strengthens them, and binds them together in a unified system called the body and bride of Christ. What kind of baptism was this? He said, be baptized. It must have been the kind of baptism that he talked about when he left the world. He said, now here's how you're to baptize. Now these instructions are very clear. And the early church understood what it meant. Now, when the Apostle Peter told those thousands of men in Jerusalem, those Jews, that you're to do what? You are to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That means in his authority, for his glory. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the head, the bride, groom of the bride, the head of the body. In his, well, how do we baptize people in his name? The way he told us to in the end of Matthew chapter 28. Listen carefully. Therefore make disciples to all nations, he said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as you perhaps know, all early Christians, as far as you know, for the first couple hundred years, 
understood to mean uh, try an immersion. Something this is a visually something you see. You see people being immersed into into the water, the baptismal tank, the river, lake, whatever it is. Three dips of the head in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. They say, why three? Because there are three persons. Remember, over and over again, the Holy Spirit does not act independently. Jesus does not act independently. They act together as a, a Godhead, a unity in deity. Forever and ever, for His glory. So, friends, everywhere we go in this church age until the rapture, let's tell people who Jesus is, what He accomplished, and what we're to do to symbolize our relationship to Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, day by day, around the world, until Jesus comes to take us to Himself. As we have surveyed the significance of Pentecost in both the Old and New Testaments over the past two weeks, we've seen again that God's Word is true from the beginning to the end. You can find much more teaching from Encounter God's Truth by going to WhitcombMinistries.org and following the link to SermonAudio.com slash Whitcomb. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and at this point of the broadcast, I always have the opportunity to ask a question of our speaker. So, Dr. Whitcomb, since both Israel and the Church have historical connections to Pentecost, I'm wondering, what will be the future of the Feast of Pentecost in the coming Millennial Kingdom? Well, friends, we've seen how Pentecost looks back at the creation of the nation of Israel. We've seen how Pentecost is the birthday of the Church. But what about the future Kingdom Age? There is no Pentecost celebrated anymore ever. Why? Because no new organism, no new system is created. Israel, the Church... No more. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 45, verse 18. Thus says the Lord God, In the first month, on the first of the month, you shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. All right, now verse 20. On the seventh day, for everyone who goes astray or is naive, so you make atonement for the house, the temple. Verse 21. On the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, you shall have Passover. Passover will be celebrated during the kingdom age. And what else will be celebrated? Look at this, verse 25. In the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, at the feast, he, that is the, the governor, the prince, in the, representing Jesus in the kingdom age, will provide seven days for the sin offering, burnt offering, and grain offering, and the oil. No day of Pentecost, no feast of trumpets, no day of atonement. Jesus has paid the price. He's already come. Pentecost has been fulfilled in its function, its purpose, its symbolism. You say, how can you be sure of all these things? Well, friends, for many years I've studied this passage in Ezekiel and have incorporated this discussion with documentation and explanation in a new book I've done called The Rapture and Beyond. Hope that'll be of interest and help to you. Now, friends, the amazing thing about that Feast of Tabernacles is that it is emphasized, you remember, in Zechariah 14. It'll come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem, that's Armageddon, will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and celebrate the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. My, why? Because Tabernacles represents what? The coming of the King to dwell with his people, like it was in back in the Old Testament. And uh, I say, well, Lord, that is amazing. wonder if somebody in the kingdom age doesn't want to go to the, Jerusalem to celebrate that annual event, which might be the day of the year when Jesus actually appears on earth one day a year 
to be seen, worshipped, and honored. Well, there'll be punishment. There'll be no rain on them. And if anybody comes from Egypt and says, I have decided I'm not coming back again, they'll experience a plague. And they know what plagues mean, don't they? This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So, friends, we see how God meticulously, carefully, intricately designs specific dispensations like the law, the church, the kingdom, where different symbolic representations of his glory will be made manifest. It's not just memorial sacrifices, friends. Anyone who participates will be protected from premature judgment, just like the Old Testament sacrifices. Never took away sin, never will. No, and the blood of bulls and goats can't do that, but they protected them from what? Premature judgment, a spectacular visual aid of God's extended mercy program. Not just a visual aid, not just an object lesson, but a, a, a protection from what people deserve who don't love and honor the Lord. Well, thank you, Lord, for telling us these little things about what's coming when we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thanks, Dr. Whitcomb. These are things we don't often think about, but very appropriate for this study and this day. We trust that you've been blessed by this two-part series on the significance of Pentecost. To receive more of the teaching that we offer on Encounter God's Truth, you can always listen to sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. Also, make sure to connect with us at facebook.com slash Whitcomb Ministries. Then, please join us here next week for more learning and encouragement from the classic Bible teaching of Dr. John Whitcomb. And have a blessed Pentecost Sunday.